Welcome to Prescribed Listening from the University of Toledo Medical Center. On this podcast, we interview our experts to get the answers you need and can trust. I'm your host, Chrissy Bilo, and today we are diving into some of the top Googled health questions with UTMC primary care doctor, Dr. Kevin Phelps. Dr. Phelps, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Should you really care about your cholesterol levels? And what kind of control do you have when it comes to lowering your blood pressure? Let's ask the expert. Dr. Phelps, what is cholesterol and does it really count? It counts big time. If you had asked me this question a year ago, my answer would have been much different. But yeah, cholesterol is probably the most significant risk factor for the development of cardiovascular disease, which is the number one killer in this country is heart attack and stroke. And you have like an amazing degree of control over your numbers and over what happens to your future. What is cholesterol? It is a compound that is produced in our bodies, primarily in the liver. We also consume it and we need very little cholesterol, if any, in our diet. But it's very important in cell membranes and hormones, and so we need it. It's essential for life, but too much of it can clog our arteries and wreak havoc. You always hear about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. What's the difference, and I guess, is cholesterol just bad for you? So there's good cholesterol. Some people refer to it as LDL, low-density lipoprotein. And that's the type of cholesterol that's smaller particles that can go into the artery wall and create inflammation and then laying down of fatty streaks and ultimately plaque. And then the HDL or high-density lipoprotein are bigger particles. They're scavengers. They're going to go around and basically gobble up all of the bad cholesterol in arteries, take it back to the liver for reprocessing, and it's that balance of good and bad. Hopefully you have a lot more good than bad in your bloodstream to prevent atherosclerosis. When someone goes to their primary care doctor for a a checkup, what are you looking for when it comes to cholesterol? So it depends on their age in terms of when we start screening for cholesterol. We're gonna take a good history. What is their family history like? What is their health history like? If they've got other medical problems that would you know, make it more of a high risk condition where we'd be thinking more about screening and monitoring their cholesterol levels. Um, so it's individualized and it, it really significantly depends on their family history. So we'll even screen kids if they've got a significant family history of coronary artery disease and high cholesterol. So if my mom or dad has it, is it pretty much a guarantee I'll have an It's issue? not a guarantee, but it's, it's likely. How can you tell if someone has high or low cholesterol? Is that something you can feel? Like, is there a physical symptom? No. So that's something we need to do a blood test on, typically a fasting cholesterol panel to screen best for cholesterol issues. What should someone be concerned about if you have high or low cholesterol? Like at what point do you need more or less, or when does it lead to a heart attack or stroke? Yeah, so I think most of us nowadays are using risk calculators, which you're going to put in things like age, gender, blood pressure, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, those types of things, and that puts out a number. 
it's a 10-year risk of having a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years. And that risk stratifies patients and helps you decide on therapy, whether it's lifestyle, whether we're talking about medications, but it, it's always gonna start with lifestyle change. Is this calculator something that has to be done in a doctor's office or are people Googling it and putting it in? Hmm, I've never been asked that question. I think most of the time it's gonna be done by your doctor. Uh, I'm crunching these numbers right in front of the patient when they come in the office because I've got their numbers in front of me, whether current blood pressure and their lipid panel numbers or cholesterol panel numbers. And oftentimes I'll email a copy of that report to them. What's the range you want to be in? Lower the better. Your LDL should be uh, as low as possible. And you are looking at that ratio of good over bad. Even though the bad may not be terrible, if your good is low, that ratio of bad over good can still be significant. Okay. Are there no, is there a number to it? Like, don't go over this? So the, the old number was a total cholesterol of 200. Um, but again, that has been a moving target over the years. If you don't have diabetes or coronary artery disease risks, then an LDL of less than 130. If you've got diabetes, you want it less than 70. So it really depends on, you know, your health. How old do we need to be to start checking our cholesterol? Hmm. Again, that depends on family history. If you're healthy and no comorbid illnesses, and insurance factors in on this too, it's, that's changed significantly over the last few years. A lot of insurance companies are not paying for screening cholesterol panels. It used to be those types of things we could easily get covered. Now it falls on the patients about whether they want to have a, a screening cholesterol panel or not. But if they've got risk factors or they've got a history of an elevated cholesterol, typically we're starting screening 35. 35. Age 35. So it's not something for your, unless you're under 35, it's not going to be something they check at your annual appointment? Typically not. Okay. What's the danger of having high cholesterol when we're, I don't want to say youngish? Uh, but not finding out until you're in your 50s? Yeah, that's a great question because there's studies that have shown that you're seeing evidence of atherosclerosis in a very young age, 20s and 30s, fatty streaks and things like that. It doesn't become evidence or manifests itself until 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, but all of that is happening at a much early age. And so I guess... It why is it not being screened? It's, a, it's blood work, right? Right. Why is this not being recommended? What changed? It is something in the healthcare world of yeah. cholesterol is not the bigger issue. It would be other things. It's the country and the world that we live in right now. Is it okay if I talk a little bit about blue zones? So I think that really puts this into context because those are areas of the world where you pretty much do not see things like hardening of the arteries heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes. And we, they don't see them in those areas of the world. And there are things like Central Africa, Okinawa, Japan, even Loma Linda, California, places like that, where they eat mostly plants. They're very active physically. Uh, they take time to de-stress. They're very community-oriented, oftentimes with a spiritual or religious theme. They push themselves away from the table when they're about 80% full. Their smallest meal of the day is late afternoon, early evening. They don't have hardening of the arteries in those communities. And that was a real, uh, like, epiphany for me 
when I started learning about these things because we have just become accustomed to having hardening of the arteries in this country, and we don't have to. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Now, talking more about lifestyle stuff and how you can, things you can do to control your cholesterol, if anyone has ever seen a Cheerios commercial, you know it's been drilled into our heads that it helps lower cholesterol. What can we do to change our cholesterol levels? Is there a natural way, foods we should be eating, more Cheerios? What do we do? Yeah. So there's good evidence to support advising your patients that they should be eating mostly plants, okay? Whole grain breads and whole grains, things like that. The thing in the Cheerios which makes it healthy is that it's got whole grain, uh, whole wheat in it, and that's going to bind cholesterol in the gut and lower your cholesterol level, reducing your risk for hardening of the arteries. So dietary changes are significant, but regular physical activity, all those things is, is going to be protective for you. So for bad cholesterol, is that that's meat? It is. Anything else? Mostly you're talking about meat. You know, whether it's red meat, chicken, even fish. And there is some like evidence in the Mediterranean diet that's a significant um, component of the Mediterranean diet is fish. But there's evidence that, that even fish can be harmful. We talk about a couple of these episodes of prescribed listening this season. The one thing I've learned and I've heard most about, no matter what we're talking about, is fiber. Mm, so I said when you're talking about mostly plants, fiber yes. plays a good role for your cholesterol levels. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And as we learn about this, it, it affects, it's, it's going to affect a lot more than just hardening of the arteries. The gut microbiome is dramatically affected by the types of foods that we eat, specifically fiber. So you can select out healthy populations of bacteria in our gut, and there's some evidence that it's even protective against COVID. Yeah, and it, it helps control of diabetes. Uh, it's, eating fiber produces like healthy short-chain fatty acids in our blood, which is protective in keeping our blood sugar down, and it's uh, kind of antioxidant, so cellular damage, oxidative stress, all those things that create inflammation in our body is made better with fiber. And exercise. And too. exercise. Now, can cholesterol be managed by diet and exercise alone, or is medicine like statins necessary? So if you look at the National Cholesterol Education Program, these guidelines that we have known about for decades, the baseline recommendations, like the, the foundational recommendations, and there's pages and pages and pages of them, all have to do with lifestyle. And the, the healthcare providers know about this. And yes, we do talk to our patients about this, but it's so much easier to prescribe a medication than it is to help people change behavior and to really help them understand the influence they have over their health. Like I think most patients really don't understand or appreciate how much control they have over their health. They think it is going to require a prescription. And I would argue that it's completely the opposite of that. Looking at lifestyle as the main source of treatment, not secondary, but the main source of treatment. And then if you need a medication, that's gonna be an add-on. So let's see if you can stop, you know, don't have macaroni and cheese all the time. You know, get up a half hour earlier and work out for 
20 minutes before you start getting ready for your day. Things make those habits, try and make those stick before you try medicine. Absolutely. So we, uh, we talked about Mediterranean diet, which brings up the question, do you have any diet recommendations or any diet changes we can make? Because you always see there's a new fad diet out there. But what can we realistically do that you believe would be most effective? Yeah, I, I really don't like the word diet. What I'm learning is to help patients change behavior, you need to be very specific. There's something called a SMART goal. And SMART is an acronym for specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-based. So you're gonna set a goal with the patient at the time of the visit, helping them with behavior change. And it's gonna be them picking what the goal is gonna be. Is it gonna be a dietary goal? Is it gonna be a physical activity goal? Is it gonna be a sleep goal or a stress management goal? And then you can just build on that over time. But I would say, if you're looking at making some changes with the way, with your eating habits, I like the term flexitarian because it's a progressive, dynamic kind of thing. The flexitarian, you could look at that as basically the traditional American diet on one side and vegan on the other. And then in between is eating more plants, more and more plants, and less and less animal protein on your way over to the vegan. The vegan diet is a challenging diet. Uh, There's no doubt about it. But moving towards more vegetables and fruits and whole grains and less animal protein, you're gonna help yourself significantly. And these changes are dose dependent. The more changes that you make, the more benefits you're going to get. See, I like that more than we're going to be on whatever the latest fad diet is and you can only do this and this much this much each day and that that seems more reasonable and something i can easily do it's less daunting i think and when i when i talk to patients about uh, health behavior change i like the term relentless incrementalism which is basically baby steps over time and you're going to have missteps and you're going to fall backwards get back at it learn from your mistakes and just continue to make these small steps over time and you know it's going to help in the long run switching gears let's talk about blood pressure but before we get to the top googled question just as a baseline what is blood pressure blood pressure is the pressure inside of our heart and cardiovascular system arteries that's produced by the heart contracting which is the top number and relaxing which is the bottom number of a blood pressure measurement why is that so important for our body well we need blood pressure to live obviously (laughs) but when the blood pressure gets too low then we don't feel good we're tired and we can pass out and fall and hurt ourselves if the blood pressure is too high then it's gonna damage arteries and capillaries in our hearts and our brains and our kidneys and you know, all over our bodies. More often it's people have the high blood pressure though. Correct. How would you lower it? Again, I'm gonna start with lifestyle. If you, look in, if you look in those blue zones where we don't see much hypertension, hypertension is very uncommon. Like I think the statistics that I read recently was in those blue zones, you may have 5% of the population having hypertension as compared to this country, we see 30% of the population with hypertension. When you hear that number, 30% of our country's population has that, I mean, do you get angry? Like, how- It's more concern. 
So how can a person tell if their blood pressure is up or down? When I went to medical school, we were taught that patients really can't tell if their blood pressure is up. But through experience, there are some patients who experience headache and fatigue consistently when their blood pressure is elevated. So I do think in certain instances, if patients are not feeling well or if they're tired or if they've got headaches and they don't normally get headaches, that that may be an indicator that their blood pressure may be elevated. What causes your blood pressure to go up? So 90% or, or more of high blood pressure is what's called essential hypertension, which means we don't know what causes your blood pressure to be high. But again, going back to the lifestyle, it's probably we're eating too much salt and too much red meat and we're not exercising and all of those things that go along with elevated blood pressure. So the same question as before with cholesterol. Who needs to really watch and get their blood pressure checked? And should everyone be thinking about this? Is there, is there a screening for this? Or is this something that is regularly checked? Because it's such an important risk factor for disease, specifically cardiovascular disease, it is a vital sign that we check every single time patients come in the office. Is there a good range to be in? Or does it depend on the person? So there are many, many different guidelines for high blood pressure, but I think most doctors will go by the guideline of a blood pressure in the office of less than 140 over 90. And at home or out of the office, your blood pressure should be lower. Most of us use a blood pressure of less than 130 over 80. At what point does someone need to be on medication to control it? So we make the diagnosis of high blood pressure when you've got more than two readings at or above 140 over 90. And then at that point, we are talking about lifestyle change and then give them time to make some of these changes. And then at some point, you decide with the patient on when it's time to start treating their high blood pressure. It's like having cholesterol, high cholesterol, that is somewhat hereditary. You always yes. look at family history. Is high blood pressure the same? Yes, it seems to run in families. I want to talk about some elements of your practice. What have you been working on lately? And specifically, based on our, where our conversation has gone, I'm eager to hear about lifestyle medicine and some changes uh, you've made in how you perceive um, overall health. Yeah, so I mentioned at the beginning that my answers to your questions today would have been completely different a year ago, and that's because I had a non-medical friend ask me uh, almost two and a half years ago if I ever watched the documentary The Game Changers, and I hadn't, and my wife and I decided to watch it. It's on Netflix? It is on Netflix, and my wife and I watched it, and it literally was a game changer for both of us. Then I learned about a subspecialty in medicine called lifestyle medicine, which has been around for about two decades. It's through the American Board of Medical Specialties. And as I started learning about it, it really drew me in to the point of getting board certified this past December in lifestyle medicine. And we have decided as a family medicine residency program to bring the lifestyle medicine residency curriculum into our program. So residents who elect to get trained in lifestyle medicine can be double boarded at the end of training. Tell me about how this transformed you as a doctor. I mean, it, it was a it was game changer. It was, it was a show. Yeah. What, where was the impact there? Well, I, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I really feel like I was deceived 
as a physician, and I think I got more nutritional education in my undergrad because I selected courses in nutrition, and also in my, in my residency program, we had a nutritionist. But over time, I think, you know, society and what's accepted by society can kind of wear you down, so to speak. So you're believing what everybody else is believing. But we have, uh, we have a lot more influence over our health than we, than we think we do. And the, the, the pillars of lifestyle medicine include whole food, plant-based eating, regular physical activity, restorative sleep, stress management, avoidance of toxic substances, specifically alcohol, tobacco, and positive social connections. And when I, when I talk about these pillars with patients, they light up and they immediately will identify a couple of them that they don't do well on. Are there times where you make these recommendations and they walk away and you're like, they did not hear me? Well, they're, eventually they're going to want some medicine to go with this. Yeah, that's a great question. I had a patient yesterday afternoon, my first patient in the afternoon, who I had seen three months ago, and I may have seen her a half a dozen times, and I really didn't feel like I made that much impact on my last visit with her. But I had in my note that I did talk to her about the Game Changers documentary, because that's something I've been doing with most of my patients. When I entered the room, she immediately said, I watched the Game Changers documentary, and I am now vegan. And I looked at the vital signs and she's lost 30 pounds. And she was on fire. She was so excited. She was telling her friends about it who were watching the Game Changers documentary. She hasn't influenced her son, her son and daughter and her husband yet, but she, she is fully on board with these changes. That's incredible. It's just going vegan. Yes. That's incredible. It's hard to do. You mentioned it's really hard to do, but the results are three months. Yes. That's fast. 30 pounds. And this lady actually had prediabetes. Her A1C was 6.3%. And she said, I'd like another three months to continue on this journey. And then when I see her again in three months from now, we're going to recheck an A1C at the point of care. I am certain it's going to be normal when I see her. What is one thing you want to tell your patients? If you could tell all of them one thing. Well, the thing that comes to mind, which I've already said a couple of times, is that we have a lot more control over our health than we think we do. I think some people are resigned to their family history. They've got a family history of heart disease or diabetes or high blood pressure or cancer, and they think that they're just, that's just their lot in life. That's what's going to happen to them. There's an uh, emerging field called epigenetics. You've heard of genes and the DNA and things like that. But epigenetics is the study of non-DNA sequence components that influence genetic expression. So think of it as like switches or modulators on these genes that influence whether or not that gene is expressed or not. So whether it's the cancer gene or the diabetes gene or the heart disease gene, if you don't take good care of yourself and you're not eating well and you're not managing your stress well and you're not active physically and you're not sleeping well or you're smoking and you're you know doing things like that the likelihood of you turning on those bad genes is much higher than if you were taking good care of yourself and paying attention to those so you do have control you do you have a lot more control than you think you do what's the most common question you get from your patients and what's your answer most patients don't bring this up to me. This is a new concept, believe it or not, because we live in a society where 
we just think that we gotta take pharmacological medications. Uh, and it's, I, I, I learned in residency, my, my faculty taught me an external locus of control, meaning things are influencing me and that's just the way it's gonna be, rather than an internal locus of control, like I can influence what happens to me. And you wanna really help patients understand that they have a significant internal locus of control that they don't need outside things to take care of them, that they can take care of themselves with help and guidance and advice. So for someone who is listening right now, how can they schedule an appointment with you? They can call our office at 419-383-5555. I've got many partners who take good holistic care of patients, patient-centered care. We give advice, you guys make decisions. You're not, you as the doctor, you're not in control. We are. It's, it's always flipped around. I always look at a doctor and it's like, you're going to help me. You're going to help me figure this out. But it's really in my hands. Right. We like to look at it as a therapeutic alliance. But the patient is in the center and we are your advisor and your colleague and whatever we can do to help you with all of those domains of lifestyle, whether it's what you're eating, how you're managing your stress, how we can help you become more physically active. And we've really uh, evolved into team-based care. So in my practice five years ago, for many years, I thought it was a doctor practicing on an island. Now we have embedded behavioral health at the point of care. We've got doctors of pharmacy in our practice that are helping our patients every single day. We've got RN care managers in our practice who take care of our patients who need the most help and touches in between visits. So we have a lot of resources in our practice that can really take good care of patients. Well, thank you, Dr. Phelps. That's all for this episode of Prescribed Listening from the University of Toledo Medical Center. Thank you for listening. And if you like this episode, subscribe to hear more on your favorite podcast platform. Oh,